Volume the Second, Chapter Thirteen of Caleb Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Darvinia. Caleb Williams by William Godwin. Volume the Second, Chapter Thirteen. In the midst of these reflections, another thought, which had not before struck me, occurred to my mind. I exult, said I, and reasonably, over the impotence of my persecutor. Is not that impotence greater than I have yet imagined? I say he may cut off my existence, but cannot disturb my serenity. It is true. My mind, the clearness of my spirit, the firmness of my temper, are beyond his reach. Is not my life equally so, if I please? What are the material obstacles that man never subdued? What is the undertaking so arduous, that by some has not been accomplished? And if by others, why not by me? Had they stronger motives than I? Was existence more variously endeared to them? Or had they more numerous methods by which to animate and adorn it? Many of those who have exerted most perseverance and intrepidity were obviously my inferiors in that respect. Why should not I be as daring as they? Adamant and steel have a ductility like water, to a mind sufficiently bold and contemplative. The mind is master of itself, and is endowed with powers that might enable it to laugh at the tyrant's vigilance. I passed and repassed these ideas in my mind, and heated with the contemplation I said, No, I will not die. My reading, in early youth, had been extremely miscellaneous. I had read of housebreakers, to whom locks and bolts were a jest, and who, vain of their art, exhibited the experiment of entering a house the most strongly barricaded, with as little noise, and almost as little trouble, as other men would lift up a latch. There is nothing so interesting to the juvenile mind, as the wonderful, there is no power that it so eagerly covets, as that of astonishing spectators by its miraculous exertions. Mind appeared, to my untutored reflections, vague, airy, and unfettered, the susceptible perceiver of reasons, but never intended by nature to be the slave of force. Why should it be in the power of man to overtake and hold me by violence? Why, when I choose to withdraw myself, should I not be capable of eluding the most vigilant search? These limbs, and this trunk, are a cumbrous and unfortunate load for the power of thinking to drag along with it. But why should not the power of thinking be able to lighten the load, till it shall be no longer felt? These early modes of reflection were by no means indifferent to my present inquiries. Our next-door neighbour at my father's house had been a carpenter. Fresh from the sort of reading I have mentioned, I was eager to examine his tools, their powers, and their uses. This carpenter was a man of strong and vigorous mind, and his faculties having been chiefly confined to the range of his profession, he was fertile in experiments, and ingenious in reasoning upon these particular topics. I therefore obtained from him considerable satisfaction, and my mind being set in action, I sometimes even improved upon the hints he furnished. His conversation was particularly agreeable to me. I at first worked with him sometimes for my amusement, 
and afterwards occasionally for a short time as his journeyman. I was constitutionally vigorous, and by the experience thus attained, I added to the abstract possession of power, the skill of applying it, when I pleased, in such a manner as that no part should be inefficient. It is a strange, but no uncommon feature in the human mind, that the very resource of which we stand in greatest need in a critical situation, though already accumulated it may be, by preceding industry, fails to present itself at the time when it should be called into action. Thus my mind had passed through two very different stages since my imprisonment, before this means of liberation suggested itself. My faculties were overwhelmed in the first instance, and raised to a pitch of enthusiasm in the second, while in both I took it for granted in a manner that I must passively submit to the good pleasure of my persecutors. During the period in which my mind had been thus undecided, and when I had been little more than a month in durance, the assizes, which were held twice a year in the town in which I was a prisoner, came on. Upon this occasion my case was not brought forward, but was suffered to stand over six months longer. It would have been just the same if I had had as strong reason to expect acquittal as I had conviction. If I had been apprehended upon the most frivolous reasons upon which any justice of the peace ever thought proper to commit a naked beggar for trial, I must still have waited about two hundred and seventeen days before my innocence could be cleared." So imperfect are the effects of the boasted laws of a country, whose legislators hold their assembly from four to six months in every year. I could never discover with certainty whether this delay were owing to any interference on the part of my prosecutor, or whether it fell out in the regular administration of justice, which is too solemn and dignified to accommodate itself to the rights or benefit of an insignificant individual." But this was not the only incident that occurred to me during my confinement, for which I could find no satisfactory solution. It was nearly at the same time that the keeper began to alter his behaviour to me. He sent for me one morning into the part of the building which was appropriated for his own use, and after some hesitation, told me he was sorry my accommodations had been so indifferent, and asked whether I should like to have a chamber in his family. I was struck with the unexpectedness of this question, and desired to know whether anybody had employed him to ask it. No, he replied, but now the assizes were over, he had fewer felons on his hands, and more time to look about him. He believed I was a good kind of a young man, and he had taken a sort of a liking to me. I fixed my eyes upon his countenance as he said this. I could discover none of the usual symptoms of kindness. He appeared to me to be acting a part, unnatural, and that sat with awkwardness upon him. He went on, however, to offer me the liberty of eating at his table, which, if I chose it, he said, would make no difference to him, and he should not think of charging me anything for it. He had always indeed as much upon his hands as one person could see to, but his wife and his daughter Peggy would be woundily pleased to hear a person of learning talk, as he understood I was, and perhaps I might not feel myself unpleasantly circumstanced in their company. 
I reflected on this proposal, and had little doubt, notwithstanding what the keeper had affirmed to the contrary, that it did not proceed from any spontaneous humanity in him, but that he had, to speak the language of persons of his caste, good reasons for what he did. I busied myself in conjectures as to who could be the author of this sort of indulgence and attention. The two most likely persons were Mr. Falkland and Mr. Forrester. The latter I knew to be a man austere and inexorable towards those whom he deemed vicious. He piqued himself upon being insensible to those softer emotions, which he believed answered no other purpose than to seduce us from our duty. Mr. Falkland, on the contrary, was a man of the acutest sensibility. Hence arose his pleasures and his pains, his virtues and his vices. Though he were the bitterest enemy to whom I could possibly be exposed, and though no sentiments of humanity could divert or control the bent of his mind, I yet persuaded myself that he was more likely than his kinsman to visit in idea the scene of my dungeon, and to feel impelled to alleviate my sufferings. This conjecture was by no means calculated to serve as balm to my mind. My thoughts were full of irritation against my persecutor. How could I think kindly of a man, in competition with the gratification of whose ruling passion my good name or my life was deemed of no consideration? I saw him crushing the one, and bringing the other into jeopardy, with a quietness and composure on his part that I could not recollect without horror. I knew not what were his plans respecting me. I knew not whether he troubled himself so much as to form a barren wish for the preservation of one whose future prospects he had so iniquitously tarnished. I had hitherto been silent as to my principal topic of recrimination, but I was by no means certain that I should consent to go out of the world in silence, the victim of this man's obduracy and art. In every view I felt my heart ulcerated with a sense of his injustice, and my very soul spurned these pitiful indulgences, at a time that he was grinding me into dust with the inexorableness of his vengeance. I was influenced by these sentiments in my reply to the jailer, and I found a secret pleasure in pronouncing them in all their bitterness. I viewed him with a sarcastic smile and said I was glad to find him of a sudden become so humane. I was not, however, without some penetration as to the humanity of a jailer, and could guess at the circumstances by which it was produced. But he might tell his employer that his cares were fruitless. I would accept no favours from a man that held a halter about my neck, and had courage enough to endure the worst both in time to come and now. The jailer looked at me with astonishment, and turning upon his heel exclaimed, "'Well done, my cock! You have not had your learning for nothing, I see. You are set upon not dying dunghill. But that is to come, lad. You had better by half keep your courage till you shall find it wanted.' The assizes, which passed over without influence to me, produced a great revolution among my fellow-prisoners. I lived long enough in the jail to witness a general mutation of its inhabitants. One of the housebreakers, the rival of the Duke of Bedford, and the coiner were hanged. 
two more were cast for transportation, and the rest acquitted. The transports remained with us, and though the prison was thus lightened of nine of its inhabitants, there were, at the next half-yearly period of assizes, as many persons on the felon's side, within three, as I had found on my first arrival. The soldier, whose story I have already recorded, died on the evening of the very day on which the judges arrived, of a disease the consequence of his confinement. Such was the justice that resulted from the laws of his country, to an individual who would have been the ornament of any age, one who, of all the men I ever knew, was perhaps the kindest, of the most feeling heart, of the most engaging and unaffected manners, and the most unblemished life. The name of this man was Brightwell. Were it possible for my pen to consecrate him to never-dying fame, I could undertake no task more grateful to my heart. His judgment was penetrating and manly, totally unmixed with imbecility and confusion, while at the same time there was such an uncontending frankness in his countenance, that a superficial observer would have supposed he must have been the prey of the first plausible knavery that was practised against him. Great reason have I to remember him with affection. He was the most ardent, I had almost said the last, of my friends. Nor did I remain in this respect in his debt. There was indeed a great congeniality, if I may presume to say so, in our characters, except that I cannot pretend to rival the originality and self-created vigour of his mind, or to compare with what the world has scarcely surpassed, the correctness and untainted purity of his conduct. He heard my story, as far as I thought proper to disclose it, with interest. He examined it with sincere impartiality. And if, at first, any doubt remained upon his mind, a frequent observation of me in my most unguarded moments taught him in no long time to place an unreserved confidence in my innocence. He talked of the injustice of which we were mutual victims, without bitterness, and delighted to believe that the time would come when the possibility of such intolerable oppression would be extirpated. But this, he said, was a happiness reserved for posterity. It was too late for us to reap the benefit of it. It was some consolation to him that he could not tell the period in his past life which the best judgment of which he was capable would teach him to spend better. He could say with as much reason as most men, he had discharged his duty. But he foresaw that he should not survive his present calamity. This was his prediction, while yet in health. He might be said, in a certain sense, to have a broken heart. But if that phrase were in any way applicable to him, sure never was despair more calm, more full of resignation and serenity. At no time in the whole course of my adventures was I exposed to a shock more severe than I received from this man's death. The circumstances of his fate presented themselves to my mind in their full complication of iniquity. From him, and the execrations with which I loaded the government that could be the instrument of his tragedy, I turned to myself. I beheld the catastrophe of Brightwell with envy, 
A thousand times I longed that my course had lain in death, instead of his. I was only reserved, as I persuaded myself, for unutterable woe. In a few days he would have been acquitted, his liberty, his reputation restored. Mankind, perhaps, struck with the injustice he had suffered, would have shown themselves eager to balance his misfortunes, and obliterate his disgrace. But this man died, and I remained alive. I, who, though not less wrongfully treated than he, had no hope of reparation, must be marked as long as I lived for a villain, and in my death probably held up to the scorn and detestation of my species. Such were some of the immediate reflections which the fate of this unfortunate martyr produced in my mind. Yet my intercourse with Brightwell was not, in the review, without its portion of comfort. I said, This man has seen through the veil of calumny that overshades me. He has understood, and has loved me. Why should I despair? May I not meet hereafter with men, ingenuous like him, who shall do me justice, and sympathize with my calamity? With that consolation I will be satisfied. I will rest in the arms of friendship, and forget the malignity of the world. Henceforth I will be contented with tranquil obscurity, with the cultivation of sentiment and wisdom, and the exercise of benevolence within a narrow circle. It was thus that my mind became excited to the project I was about to undertake. I had no sooner meditated the idea of an escape, than I determined upon the following method of facilitating the preparations for it. I undertook to ingratiate myself with my keeper. In the world I have generally found such persons as had been acquainted with the outline of my story, regarding me with a sort of loathing and abhorrence, which made them avoid me, with as much care as if I had been spotted with the plague. The idea of my having first robbed my patron, and then endeavouring to clear myself by charging him with subordinations against me, placed me in a class distinct from, and infinitely more guilty than, that of common felons. But this man was too good a master of his profession, to entertain aversion against a fellow-creature upon that score. He considered the persons committed to his custody merely as so many human bodies, for whom he was responsible that they should be forthcoming in time and place, and the difference of innocence and guilt he looked down upon as an affair beneath his attention. I had not therefore the prejudices to encounter in recommending myself to him, that I have found so peculiarly obstinate in other cases. Add to which the same motive, whatever it was, that had made him so profuse in his offers a little before, had probably its influence on the present occasion. I informed him of my skill in the profession of a joiner, and offered to make him half a dozen handsome chairs, if he would facilitate my obtaining the tools necessary for carrying on my profession in my present confinement. For without his consent previously obtained, it would have been in vain for me to expect that I could quietly exert an industry of this kind, even if my existence had depended upon it. He looked at me first, as asking himself what he was to understand by this novel proposal, and then his countenance most graciously relaxing, 
said he was glad I was come off a little of my high notions, and my buckram, and he would see what he could do. Two days after, he signified his compliance. He said that, as to the matter of the present I had offered him, he thought nothing of that. I might do as I pleased in it. But I might depend upon every civility from him that he could show, with safety to himself, if so be as, when he was civil, I did not offer a second time for to snap and take him up short. Having thus gained my preliminary, I gradually accumulated tools of various sorts, gimlets, piercers, chisels, etc. I immediately set myself to work. The nights were long, and the sordid eagerness of my keeper, notwithstanding his ostentatious generosity, was great. I therefore petitioned for, and was indulged with, a bit of candle, that I might amuse myself for an hour or two with my work, after I was locked up in my dungeon. I did not, however, by any means apply constantly to the work I had undertaken, and my jailer betrayed various tokens of impatience. Perhaps he was afraid I should not have finished it before I was hanged. I, however, insisted upon working at my leisure as I pleased, and this he did not venture expressly to dispute. In addition to the advantages thus obtained, I procured secretly from Miss Peggy, who now and then came into the jail to make her observations of the prisoners, and who seemed to have conceived some partiality for my person, the implement of an iron crow. In these proceedings it is easy to trace the vice and duplicity that must be expected to grow out of injustice. I know not whether my readers will pardon the sinister advantage I extracted from the mysterious concessions of my keeper but I must acknowledge my weakness in that respect. I am writing my adventures, and not my apology, and I was not prepared to maintain the unvaried sincerity of my manners at the expense of a speedy close of my existence. My plan was now digested. I believed that, by means of the crow, I could easily, and without much noise, force the door of my dungeon from its hinges, or if not, that I could, in case of necessity, cut away the lock. This door led into a narrow passage, bounded on one side by the range of dungeons, and on the other by the jailer's and turnkey's apartments, through which was the usual entrance from the street. This outlet I dared not attempt, for fear of disturbing the persons close to whose very door I should, in that case, have found it necessary to pass. I determined, therefore, upon another door at the further end of the passage, which was well barricaded, and which led to a sort of garden in the occupation of the keeper. This garden I had never entered, but I had had an opportunity of observing it from the window of the felon's day-room, which looked that way, the room itself being immediately over the range of dungeons. I perceived that it was bounded by a wall of considerable height, which I was told by my fellow-prisoners was the extremity of the jail on that side, and beyond which was a back lane of some length that terminated in the skirts of the town. Upon an accurate observation, and much reflection upon the subject, I found I should be able, if once I got into the garden, with my gimlets and piercers inserted at proper distances to make a sort of ladder, by means of which I could clear the wall, 
and once more take possession of the sweets of liberty. I preferred this wall to that which immediately skirted my dungeon, on the other side of which was a populous street. I suffered about two days to elapse from the period at which I had thoroughly digested my project, and then, in the very middle of the night, began to set about its execution. The first door was attended with considerable difficulty, but at length this obstacle was happily removed. The second door was fastened on the inside. I was therefore able with perfect ease to push back the bolts. But the lock, which of course was depended upon for the principal security, and was therefore strong, was double-shot, and the key taken away. I endeavoured with my chisel to force back the bolt of the lock, but to no purpose. I then unscrewed the box of the lock, and that being taken away, the door was no longer opposed to my wishes. Thus far I had proceeded with the happiest success, but close on the other side of the door there was a kennel with a large mastiff dog, of which I had not the smallest previous knowledge. Though I stepped along in the most careful manner, this animal was disturbed and began to bark. I was extremely disconcerted, but immediately applied myself to soothe the animal, in which I presently succeeded. I then returned along the passage, to listen whether anybody had been disturbed by the noise of the dog, resolved, if that had been the case, that I would return to my dungeon, and endeavour to replace every thing in its former state. But the whole appeared perfectly quiet, and I was encouraged to proceed in my operation. I now got to the wall, and had nearly gained half the ascent, when I heard a voice at the garden door crying, Halloa! Who's there? Who opened the door? The man received no answer, and the night was too dark for him to distinguish objects at any distance. He therefore returned, as I judged, into the house for a light. Meantime the dog, understanding the key in which these interrogations were uttered, began barking again more violently than ever. I had now no possibility of retreat, and I was not without hopes that I might yet accomplish my object, and clear the wall. Meanwhile a second man came out, while the other was getting his lantern, and by the time I had got to the top of the wall was able to perceive me. He immediately set up a shout, and threw a large stone which grazed me in its flight. Alarmed at my situation, I was obliged to descend on the other side without taking the necessary precautions, and in my fall nearly dislocated my ankle. There was a door in the wall of which I was not previously apprised, and this being opened, the two men with the lanterns were on the other side in an instant. They had then nothing to do but to run along the lane to the place from which I had descended. I endeavoured to rise after my fall, but the pain was so intense that I was scarcely able to stand, and after having limped a few paces, I twisted my foot under me and fell down again. I had now no remedy, and quietly suffered myself to be retaken. End of chapter 13 of volume the second